The last section of this gospel chapter, this great chapter that includes that one great verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We learn of another great verse in this passage that we have before us today. A very simple verse, a verse made up of seven words. Words that come forth from the heart and the mouth of John the Baptist. And that phrase that he gives us is, He must increase, but I must decrease. The majority of the time that we've spent in this particular chapter has been on the first part of, of, of uh, chapter 3 that deals with a visitation by a man named Nicodemus to Jesus who came to inquire of Jesus as to who he was, what his mission was as it were because he had caused quite a stir when he went into the temple area one day and overturned the tables of the money changers and the people who were selling animals for sacrifice. And he made this bold statement that the house of God was not to be turned into a house of merchandise. And probably at the behest of his own religious counterparts in, in, in Jerusalem, Nicodemus comes, a member of the Sanhedrin, somebody that was very dedicated to the Word of God, but was rich and had a great reputation. And certainly part of his reputation was that he kept all the rituals as a Pharisee. But in his inquiries of Jesus, he never really got too far. Because Jesus immediately aims toward the heart of Nicodemus and he says to him, in effect, unless a man is born again, he cannot see nor can he enter into the kingdom of God. He proceeds to tell Nicodemus, that his riches and his rituals would not get him into, into heaven. But he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. And then he drew a line a line that said, He that believes in him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, for he has rejected the Son of God. How clear is this grand statement of Jesus? And so as we enter into this last section of verses 22 through 36, a new focus 
is given to us. One that actually returns to a person named John, John the Baptist. And we begin reading about this account here now in verse 22. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea. And there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anon near to Salim because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. And then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, speaking of Jesus, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizes, and all men come to him. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. So after that significantly educational visit Jesus had with Nicodemus, the Lord moved out into the country districts of Judea. Now in this time, he evidently made disciples in this area. Some of the more significant would be Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha, a man named Simeon, and another man whose name we know as Judas Iscariot. We see in these verses here today an overlapping of ministries, those of Jesus and of John the Baptist. Now some, some people would consider that a problem, overlapping of ministries. We see a little bit of that problem here in our text today. So people would consider that it's a problem that you try to avoid. Others, like John's disciples, may have felt threatened by another voice in the wilderness. See, they would have felt threatened because they had become so devoted, so dedicated to the ministry of John. They followed John. They learned from John. They would accept whatever was coming at him. They would accept it as part... Of, of, of their own uh, persecution as it were and certainly the legalists and the religionists when seeing people flock to Jesus instead of John which is happening here in this passage well, they would certainly take opportunity to attack John on crucial questions they, they may have even ribbed him a little bit and say, saying to John John so why is it that your ministry is, is, is shrinking and, and Jesus ministry is growing Now that doesn't happen today, does it? That kind of talk, that kind of jealousy between ministries, that doesn't happen today, does it? You can be sure it does. Primarily because people that are in ministry are human. Now it's important to note at this juncture that the first five chapters of John 
all take place in the course of one year's time. Theologians and Bible commentators consider that this year is, is, is the calm year. From chapter 6 on, it, it gets pretty crowded. A lot of stuff is happening. A lot of people are involved in, in the ministry of Jesus. And one main reason is because up to this point, Jesus hasn't begun his, really hasn't begun his public preaching ministry. So this time is still a relatively tranquil time when Jesus alternated his ministry of raising up his disciples between Judea and the Galilee. And apart from these five chapters, we know little about the year between the Lord's baptism and the imprisonment of John. So in our text, we find Jesus now and his disciples baptizing. That's verse 22. Jesus and his disciples together and baptizing was going on. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. I want you to take note of that word tarried, because here this word has the idea of spending much time in sharing and ministering. In fact, the word diatribos, which is the Greek word here, means to wear through in relation to time, or to rub hard and to rub through. In fact, some of you may have heard the word, in, in the word uh, diatribos. You, you hear the English word that is taken from it, diatribe. And a diatribe being a very long and an, uh, angry dis, dissertation, you know, over something. That's how it's used today. But back then it just talked about a very long and wearing discourse. So as we look at that particular word today, the best sense that we can have of it is that the diatribos means, or tarried means to rub hard and through. In other words, rubbing shoulders, as it were, with others long enough to get into their lives. That's what Jesus was doing with his disciples and anyone following him. He was rubbing shoulders with them a lot and doing it long enough to get into their lives. You see, our relationship to Jesus Christ is not one that is very simply uh, something that we take for granted, you know, and then just, and, and just kind of feed on it one day out of the week. Folks, when we are dealing with Jesus, we're dealing with Jesus every day because He's dealing with us every day, amen? I mean, He is getting on us and He's with us and He loves us and, he's, and He wants to have this, this wonderful fellowship and communion with us each and every day. So I, I welcome the fact that I can rub shoulders with Jesus every day, and so can you. But that's the understanding here, because this brings to mind that one of the Jesus' top priorities was discipling 12 men. And this required time, and Jesus took the time. But now in verse 23, while John's ministry is mentioned, the context of verses 22 and 23 together focus on Jesus' ministry signified by this phrase in verse 23. And they came. Let me read it to you. It says, And John also was baptizing in Anon. By the way, Anon means abounding in, in springs. So there was a lot of water where he went, near to a place called Salim, which a lot of people don't know where that is right now, but more than likely in, in the Judean part of, of the uh, Jordan. And uh, the, he did this, uh, was baptizing because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. But that phrase, they came and they came, actually refers back to the fact that Jesus was baptizing now. And people were coming to him. We know that from the rest of the context. 
By the way, that phrase, and they came, is written in what is called the imperfect tense, meaning they kept on coming. They kept on coming to Jesus. Now the short, ver- the, the short verse that we, we see there in verse 24, that says, for John was not yet cast into prison. This particular verse anticipates John's silence at a certain time, when he's arrested by Herod. In effect, taken out of the way. But that silence also means that this is Jesus' signal to begin his preaching ministry. Up to this point in the gospel, up to this point in the Gospel of John, what have we seen in Jesus other than the fact that he went to a wedding feast in Cana and performed a miracle there? He went to the to the temple in Jerusalem and, and there he overturned the table of the money changers. Spend some time walking around and, 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 and beginning to develop or, or to collect his, his disciples. We see then Nicodemus come to ask him questions. But no real strong public preaching ministry as of yet. That will begin when John is silenced. But our focus here is in verses 25 and 26. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And that, of course, is dealing with the issue of the baptisms that John was conducting as well as Jesus. And by the way, let me just say that those baptisms were baptisms of repentance. They were not so much the baptism that we know today as Christian baptism, where we are baptized in identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Totally different thing here. Because Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. But there is that that understanding that this was a baptism of repentance. So the question was coming up by other Jews who were coming to them and and, and looking at what they were doing out there in the Jordan instead of, of, let's say, the mikvahs, in other words, the ceremonial baths that were right outside the the temple before anybody, any of the men could walk into the temple to offer their, their worship to the Lord. They had to go through these ceremonial baths and the ceremonial process. But here John is baptizing out in the Jordan River. And as well, Jesus was now. And people were now flocking to Jesus. So that's the question about purifying. And they came unto John, his his disciple, because of the question that had arisen. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizes, and all men come to him. So now that we know that that phrase in, about baptism there in verse 23 has to do with Jesus. They were coming to Jesus. So that question probably came from a religionist who questioned the purifying value of John's baptism. What's the value of you dunking people here in this, in this river? As opposed to the washings of the Pharisees at the temple. Those of you that have been to Israel with us and have seen those, uh, the excavations of the, of the ceremonial mikvahs right down by the southern steps that, that were excavated just a few years ago. Steps upon which Jesus had walked into the temple. And there the ceremonial baths are, numbers of them. As a matter of fact, those of you who have read the book of Acts, you know that in Acts chapter 2, when 3,000 people come to the Lord uh, for salvation, they're baptized in those mikvahs. So, 
why, you know, what's the value of your baptism as opposed to the, the, the ceremonial washings at the temple or even the Essenes, that group of men who lived out in the desert copying the word of God on a daily basis. They had a, a lot of mikvahs out there at Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls had been found and, and we saw those ex- excavations as well. A lot of ceremonial baths. They're purifying themselves because of their, their handling of the word of God and all. So what makes your baptism and Jesus' baptism, what makes that a value? And on top of all of that, Jesus now was baptizing, and this was on the, on the heart of his disciples, on John's disciples. Well, now Jesus is baptized, and they're coming to him. And he was growing a larger gathering of followers. So, so this certainly would have angered John's disciples, even to the point of jealousy. And there are a couple of questions that we need to ask at this point concerning purifying and cleansing. The first question is this, can the human heart really be cleansed? Can the human heart really be cleansed? In other words, can the need for men for cleansing really be met? The second question is this, and it is, uh, it's a question to the supremacy in a person's life. In other words, who's supreme in your life? in relation to the need for cleansing. Who is supreme in your life? The question is, who is man to follow? To whom should man turn for cleansing? Should man turn to other men as religious leaders, or should they turn to Jesus Christ? I want you to take note of two tragic facts. Two tragic facts. First of all, every person seeks the cleansing of their heart from some place. Every person seeks the cleansing of their heart from some place. They seek release from sensing wrong and failure. They seek some dissolving of guilt. However, few seek cleansing from Jesus Christ. They seem to seek it everywhere except Christ. Now, I'm not talking about the broader sense of, you know, how other people seek uh, uh, cleansing in the world. Let's just bring it home and just talk about how people seek cleansing within the Christian community or the Christian uh, thought. Because there are a lot of people that even in, 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 in Christendom seek cleansing everywhere except Christ. Think. They'll seek it in religion or religious things. They'll seek it in attending church long enough to salve their conscience and give forth a feeling of acceptance by God. But not really knowing if they have acceptance by God. They seek it in giving to charity. They seek it in doing good deeds for others. They seek it in being loyal to some man's teaching or leadership. But may I say to you that a person who is cleansed by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that Christ has done on the cross, listen, we... What it does is it, makes, it gives us the right perspective for these things that I mentioned. First of all, we don't, we don't seek uh, things from a religion. We have a relationship to Jesus. Amen? And the other thing is, we come to church not because we have to. We come to church because we want to. Well, only half of you said amen on that one. I hope the other half understand. We're here because we want to be here. The other thing, too, is that we don't, we, you know, we, we don't need a salve. I mean, we have the blood of Jesus Christ on us. You understand? And the very fact is, because if, we, because if we believe what Christ has done for us, we are accepted by God. 
Not because of anything we've done. Remember what Paul said in Titus, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He has saved us. Our giving and charity is is done because we have a new heart. We don't do it because we want to be saved. We do it because we're saved. We don't do good deeds for others because we want to be saved. We do it because we are saved. So please understand that fact. Now the second fact is that people follow some master and will give allegiance to something, whether person or thing. And that's one of the main problems here. It brings up a statement by Jesus and a statement by the Apostle Paul as well that I want you to see. Jesus said in Luke chapter 16 verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The problem is too many people who say they are Christians are trying to serve two gods. And Jesus makes it very clear with this particular statement that we can only serve one master. The God who created the heavens and the earth. We serve Him. Mammon, by the way, is just a simple, it's a a word that means wealth or material things. And too often we try to serve those things and then reserve only a certain day or two for God on one side. Then we get too busy with some of these things that we don't serve the Lord. You see, that's where we fall into that trap. Who's the master in our lives? Because whoever is the master, that is who we will serve. That is who we will worship. And then Paul says in Romans 6.16, he says, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey. What are you obeying? Whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. And again, he draws the line. And it's a thin line. Between being obedient to things that cause sin unto death, or being obedient unto righteousness, which is what lets us know that if we are obedient unto righteousness, we are obedient then unto one master, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. So may I take this time to point out this significant thing. And that is that only Jesus can purify a man's heart. Only Jesus can purify a man's heart and give him true cleansing from sin. Only Jesus. No one else, nothing else. And we need to be clear about that. Only Jesus can purify a person's heart. Now getting back to this issue between John and Jesus. May I say to you, there was no problem between John and Jesus. They weren't competing against each other. But the disciples considered that there was a problem. Because disciples are kind of loyal to who they follow. So the question here is, was Jesus invading John's prerogatives? Was he invading John's rights and entitlements as the disciples saw it? So from this argument to the affirmation that we will hear from John's lips, we see then John's heart. It is as if John stands there and rips open his chest to say, look at my heart. This is my heart in the matter. And he says in verse 27, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. 
You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. John teaches us through this experience something that I'm I'm actually going to say is really a a sideline teaching here for us today. But in this great statement that John makes, he teaches us four things to keep from this jealous attitude, this jealous heart that so hurts the church today. Four things of great importance to us. First of all, John tells his disciples, look at the big picture. Look at the big picture. Verse 27, what does he say? A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. That's the big picture. In other words, God is in charge, not man. God is in charge, not man. No one can receive a true appointment. No one can receive a true service. No one can receive a true gift unless they are given from heaven. That is, from God Himself. All appointments and gifts that have not come from heaven, those are false gifts. If they didn't come from God. If they don't go back to the Lord with glory, honor, and praise, they're not from the Lord. If they only exalt man, then that is not from God. I want you to consider something that James writes in his own letter to the church in James 1.17. Every good gift, he says, and every perfect gift is from above. The, the idea is it's not, on, it's not from this earth, it's from God himself. And it comes down from the Father of lights. I think we know who that is. That's our God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who is the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. In other words, he's not going to take anything back. I mean, whatever he gives, he gives without changing. Because he's not a changing God. He is a, he is a immutable God. He never changes. And I want you to see now, going back to John the Baptist, I want you to see the humility of John in the statement he makes here, beginning at verse 27 of our text. Because John recognizes that all he has is a gift from God. He is nothing apart from God. Folks, that has to be us. That has to be our attitude. We have what we have and it comes from God and we are nothing without Him. We are nothing without our God. Too often it is all about us, isn't it? I think that's the problem with this, this, this modern church today. So much has to be about us. No, it has to be about Him. And it always has to be about Him. Too often things are all about us and what we've done instead of praising God and thanking God for all that He's done. And and I tell you what, man is pretty clever because he does, sometimes he does things, you know, in such a way that makes it sound like we're giving the honor to God, but we're actually taking some of it ourselves. And that's not a good thing. There's a story that is told about Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher in the late 19th century. 
there at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in South London, he had a school of ministry where he taught young people the Word of God and encouraged them to pray that the Lord would send them wherever the Lord would want them to be to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to teach the Word of God. And in the course of his, of his studies, he would pick certain students to go to the pulpit and to preach and to teach. And one day he, he chose this one young man and he sent him up to the pulpit to preach. But, and by the way, let me, let me explain the pulpit in, in, in those times. Uh, I've, I've been actually to the Metropolitan Tabernacle there, but not, the original church was, was destroyed by a fire. Then they built a modern church much later. Uh, but churches like Westminster Chapel where uh, other people like David Lloyd-Jones preached and, and others, uh, they're all basically the same uh, construction. Uh, the very center of everyone's focus was on the pulpit. Why? And the pulpit, by the way, was raised up high and you had to take steps to get up to the pulpit because they had a high view of the Word of God. And so the pulpit was raised so that the Word of God would be raised and, that, and, and to give the people the understanding that God's Word was, was, was precious and, and, and it was to be always considered more important than anything else. So walking up to the pulpit was a tremendous uh, responsibility. So he sends this young man to go up and, and to teach, but he went up into the pulpit very proud. He, he went up very confident, actually overconfident. And immediately as he began to teach, he had this very difficult time in getting his message across. He fumbled with the words that he wanted to say. He lost his place a number of times. He had a hard time making his point. And, and then when he was finally done, he came down those stairs depressed and distressed, brokenhearted, humiliated. And he had to go to Spurgeon afterwards to talk about this experience. And Spurgeon gave him these wise words. He said to this young man, If you had gone up as you came down, you would have come down as you went up. You all understand what he said? If you had gone up with humility as you came down, you would have come down with confidence that you had served the Lord God rightly as you had gone up. But you went up proud. You came down humbled. What a powerful lesson for us all. When we see the big picture, God is in charge, not us. The second thing that we learn here is that we are to be secure in who we are in Christ. We need to be secure in who we are in Christ and in what, in what God has given us as our calling. We need to be secure in it. That's verses 28 and 29. You yourselves bear, bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but that I'm sent before Him. John was perfectly secure in that. And then he says, He that has the bridegroom, or he that has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which stands and, and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. Be secure in who you are in Christ. 
Now here's a very important point that I need to make. All work is significant. All work in the church is significant. Whether it's a little bit of work or it's a lot of work, whatever it is, it is significant. But there is still only one who is preeminent. All work is significant, but there's only one who is preeminent. That's the Lord Jesus himself. Do you understand the, 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 the distinction here? Everything we do for the Lord is significant, but only one is to receive the praise, honor, and glory. You see, the Lord didn't appoint John to be the Messiah. He appointed him to be the forerunner. That's why John said, I am the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And he was content in being the forerunner. He didn't want to be the Messiah because he knew he couldn't be. He wasn't the Messiah. Jesus was. And John was clear about that. Now the two examples in verses 20 and 29 that John uses best express the security that he had in his calling. For instance, what he was saying in that he's, in what he said in verse 28, you yourselves bear witness that I said I'm not the Christ but I'm sent before him. What he's saying there is that Jesus is the word, I'm the voice. Jesus is the message, Jesus is the whole, he's the Messiah, he's everything, I'm just the voice. So he knew what he was and who he was. But then he uses another example in verse 29. He says, Jesus is the bridegroom. John was just the best man. That's the friend of the bridegroom. In the Jewish wedding ceremony, Jesus was the bridegroom and John was the best man. Now, folks, we all know this. When the bride comes in down to the aisle at a wedding, you know, she's not looking at the best man. She better not be. But she's not looking at the best man. She's looking at, she's looking at the bridegroom. You know what we're saying here? <laughs> don't, don't watch those Hollywood movies that confuse everybody, you know, about who somebody's going to marry when they, you know, get in, you know. Those movies there. No, 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 no. No, this is, this is the plain thing. When the bride comes, she looks at the bridegroom. So we have to, you have to understand now, there is a tremendous responsibility in being the best man. Now, the true servants of God, let me say this before we get into the, the wedding ceremony here and the, and the usage of this example. The true servants of God are appointed to their service and ministry by God. And that says several things. The servant serves God and God alone. The servant can trust God to take care of him in his ministry. The servant should be and remain humble without envying others, for every servant's ministry is special if given by God. And the servant should be satisfied in his service and ministry, for they are there by God's appointment. Therefore, don't worry about somebody else's service. Or don't look at somebody else's service and say, Oh my goodness, they get more attention than I do. I wish I had his position. Be careful with that. That's dangerous. But remember this. Jesus said, You've not chosen me. John 15, 16. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. 
In other words, I have anointed you and given you what you need for your ministry. I have ordained you and called you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, He may give it you. You didn't choose me, I chose you. So look at the big picture. Be secure in who you are in Christ. And thirdly, have joy to the full. Have joy to the full. Now this is where the marriage ceremony comes in that's really important. Have joy to the full. Look at verse 29 again, just so you can see it. He that has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. Now, joy comes from being obedient, not from getting glory. You're going to write anything down, write that down. Joy comes from being obedient, not from getting glory. So, so let's put aside this thing that, you know, the reason why we do what we do in the church is, well, you know, Jesus is to get the glory, but I can get a little bit of it myself. No, no, we get no glory. All the glory goes to Him. In the context of this verse... The best man was the friend of the bridegroom. Now listen, the best man was the liaison between the bride and the groom. He would arrange the details of the wedding. That was the best man's job. And some of you people that are, maybe you might have a son or daughter getting ready to get married or whatever you're saying. Gee, I wish we had a best man like that. The best man don't do that anymore. So remember, this is a Jewish wedding. The best man would arrange the details of the wedding. The best man would send out invitations. Yes, the best man would send out invitations. Probably pay for it too. The best man made the announcements. The best man presided over the wedding feast. And most importantly, and get this, the best man guarded the bridal chamber. Can you see now the importance of the trust between the bridegroom and the, and, the, and the best man? The best man guarded the bridal chamber. He would let no one into the bridal chamber except the bride, who would secretly slip away. Now this is part of the ceremony. Would secretly slip away from the celebration when the bridegroom would come to take her. By the way, the celebration was a seven-day feast. I wish we had time to get into all of the spirit, the uh, prophetic implications of these things in the, uh, in, the, in the Jewish wedding ceremony that applies to the coming of Jesus for his church. We'll talk about it another time. But she, she would secretly slip away from the bridal chamber to join the groom when he came. Now, sometime later, sometime later, when the union was consummated, the groom came out and announced that fact with a shout. The groom would announce the fact with a shout. Oh, another prophetic implication. Oh, I wish we had another hour and a half. But the key here is that upon hearing the groom's voice, the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, when he heard the voice of the groom, would be finally happy and relieved.
Why? Because his job was done. His joy was full. And he could now step out of the way. What a beautiful picture. The joy that we have as servants of Jesus Christ is to be like that of the, bride, of, the, of the bridegroom's friend, the best man. To do what we do because we know at some point we will hear the groom's voice, which may one day say, Enter in, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my kingdom. Let's rejoice in whatever it is that we do for the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever it is. And by the way, it isn't just in the church. How about rejoicing in the calling God has given you in your own homes? As mothers and fathers, as parents, as husbands and wives, as children. Knowing the responsibility of serving the Lord in your own homes. Or wherever you are at work or in school. Being a servant of Jesus Christ. Being joyous and full of joy. Because you get to serve the Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe. You serve Him. I'll be shouting. I don't know. I know it's close to lunchtime, isn't it? Pretty close to lunchtime. Praise the Lord. All right. Y'all excited here? Did I put you to sleep or something? All right. Well, don't, don't. Yeah. All right. Yeah, see, that, 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 that comes close to me kind of almost drawing that out from you. The point of the matter is when we know these things, we rejoice because we serve a great and mighty king. All right, so, but here, the fourth thing is have pure humility now. Have pure humility. He must increase. And I must decrease. Jesus must become greater and greater and greater while we must become less and less. Humility calls attention to Christ, never to self. Those seven words of our text, He must increase but I must decrease, are at the very heart or or should be at the very heart of any true ministry. That Jesus be lifted up and that people are drawn to Him and not to any of us. We need to have Jesus become more visible and greater in our lives for all the world to see. And even now, more than ever, we should become like that. Because, you know, some people will say right now, you know, there's so much evil, turmoil, so much hatred, animosity toward God, toward Christ, toward the the Word of God, toward the Holy Spirit, toward toward the church, and toward people who who love Jesus. And, oh my goodness, you know, they're, they're just coming down on us. It's okay, Jesus said that would happen. He said it a long time ago. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, doesn't it make it easier for us to serve the Lord if we know that He's already overcome the world? Yes, it does. (laughs) It makes it a whole lot easier. And the very fact of the matter is, we need to shine because the Lord says you're the light of the world. We need to shine in a dark world. The world's getting darker. We need to get brighter. 
Not cover our light. I think prophetically what Jesus said about putting a bushel basket over our light, uh, you know, that goes a long way today. He says, don't put a bushel over your light. Let your light so shine before men. Let your light so shine. The 17th century Puritan Richard Baxter said on his deathbed, when someone was remembering the good which many had received by his preaching and writings, you know, they came to him, he's about to die, and they said, oh, listen, you did such wonderful things, and so many people came to the Lord, so many, you did this and you did that. You know what his words were on his deathbed? Listen to this. He said, I was but a pen in God's hand, and what praise is due to a pen? Isn't that amazing? I was but a pen in God's hand, and what praise is due to a pen? It's kind of like, and I, I know this is kind of a mundane example, but you know, one of these days this week, you're probably going to have to go to the grocery store, and usually you sit down with a big long pad and you start writing a list of what you need from Costco or Sam's or, you know, Albertsons or wherever you go to shop, you know. And so you're writing all this list down and it's getting longer and longer and longer and you're writing it all down. Finally, when you get to the very end of this list and you say, oh, I got the list down, you start kissing your pen. That pen is just deserving of all this wonderful you know, acknowledgement and glory. And honor. I mean, isn't that stupid? I mean, it's weird. You don't kiss your pen. For the most part, you probably can't even find your good pen and so you have to use a pencil. It's not about the pen or the pencil. It's about the one who holds us in his hand and uses us. That was but a pen in God's hand, Baxter said, and what praises do to a pen. Look at the big picture. God's in charge. Be secure in who you are in Christ. What he's called you to be. Be secure in that. Just do that. Don't worry about anybody else. Have your joy full. Rejoice in what you do for the Lord. And have true humility, pure humility in your heart. I want to close out this chapter. Just the last few verses here are pretty much a review of a lot of stuff we've already seen. I'll just read it and comment along the way. And we're almost done. He that cometh from above is above all, of course. We know what that means. He that cometh from above, that's Jesus, is, is, is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. Our, our, our capacity is so limited because we're on the earth. We can only speak of what we see on the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. For him to say it twice means that's significant. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no man receiveth his testimony. Two things on this verse. What he has seen and heard, that he testifies. Well, because Jesus was at creation, he was the creator of the heavens and the earth. But more importantly, as he is Jesus in the, in, in, in the presence of his own Father in heaven, he can testify of his Father and he can testify of heaven. So what is the message that he brings to this earth? He brings to us the message of his Father about heaven and about the place where his Father would want us to go and to be. But it's interesting that he says that no man receives his testimony. He came unto his own and his own received him not, it says in John chapter 1. He came as a light into the world, but the people did not understand the light, as we saw back in chapter 1. 
So this is just confirming that no man receiveth this testimony. No man actually literally means uh, not many have received his testimony. Because in the next verse it says, He that has received his testimony has said to his seal that God is true. In other words, by believing the testimony of Jesus Christ, you have sealed that testimony in your life. You've sealed that testimony in your heart. And then he says, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. I'll explain that in just a moment, but what it really is saying is, there is no limit to how much the the Father gave of the Spirit to Jesus. But I'll talk about that in a moment. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. This particular statement is probably one of the most beautiful statements of the Father's love toward his Son. Because he says he has given all things into his hand. Well, what has he given? He's given to him all rule, all power, all authority, all praise, all honor, all glory. All of it is given to his Son. That's a lot of stuff. And then verse 35 is, is, or I'm sorry, verse 36 is, is, is primarily, and in effect, it is John's altar call. He says, He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. What we learned and, and, and spent so much time in last week. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so God has sent His Son, Jesus to become flesh and to dwell among us. And thus what Jesus speaks, he does so with authority because he's not only been with the Father, but they are one. Their natures are the same. And God the Father gave the Son in his incarnation the fullness of the Spirit for God does not give the Spirit by measure or he doesn't or didn't just measure it out to him. And this is something what's of great importance for us to understand. Jesus, when he was born into, in flesh, we are told he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So from the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, everything had to do with, with, with the limit, the, the, uh, the limitless outpouring of the Spirit upon Jesus. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He did everything he did by the Holy Spirit. He preached by the Holy Spirit. He taught by the Holy Spirit. He healed by the Holy Spirit. And then he proclaimed the Holy Spirit. And eventually, after his resurrection and and ascension, he baptized everyone in the church with the Holy Spirit. And then he sends everybody out in the Holy Spirit. And and, and he tells us that we cannot even say that Jesus Christ is Lord without the Holy Spirit. The limitless outpouring of the Spirit was upon Christ. We should never forget that. The conclusion of this is that whoever believes in Jesus receives him by faith into their lives, has everlasting life, and whoever doesn't will see the wrath of God come upon them. Just as we heard the the message to Nicodemus, he who believes is not condemned, but he who believes not is condemned already, you see. And judgment for sin will be upon them. Now understand this, see that our sins have been paid in full by Christ. Our sins have been paid in full by Jesus. Amen? All of our sins have been paid in full by Jesus because He bore God's wrath as He hung on the cross and thus we have life in Him. As we wrap things up today, I want you to notice that in verse 36, 
you will not find anything dealing with the keeping of the law. You will not find things dealing with, the obe- uh, with obeying the golden rule or with going to church or with tithing or with doing the best that you can or with working your way to heaven. We don't see anything there. What do we see there? It says, He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. And again, I, I quote from Paul, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He has saved us. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. Now please understand this, that once we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, once we know that He's given us a new heart and a new mind, and, and we, are, we are saved eternally, one thing for sure, we will love His Word and want to do only His Word. We will obey the golden rule, not because we have to, because, but because we want to. We will go to church, not because we have to, but because we want to. We will tithe, not because we're forced to, but because we want to. We will do the best with everything that God has given us, but we don't work our way to heaven because Jesus has done the work for us. Let's stand on that truth. And I close with this very quickly. Verses uh, Hebrews 9 verses 11 through 15 and I'll just read it to you but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is to say not of this building neither by the blood of goats and calves but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify us to the purifying of the flesh How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. What a blessing it is to know the work that Jesus Christ did on our behalf has been so well accomplished for us that we can trust Him fully. And in trusting Him fully, we have everlasting life. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's let Jesus increase every day of our life in the time spent in prayer, in the time spent in reading and studying, in the time spent in, 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 in witnessing and testifying of the love of Christ, in the time spent in teaching our children and our families about Jesus and about the things of heaven and about the things of God. Let Him increase. And we will, in, we will decrease. But the more we decrease, the more the blessings will come. Because the Lord said, I'm going to bless you. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He shall lift you up. So let's be lifted up by the Lord and not by ourselves. Amen? Let's all stand. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for the opportunity this morning to come to you once again 
to lay down our lives before you in gratitude, Lord, for the things that you've done. And continue to do, Lord, to make us more like Christ, to make us more in the image of Christ. Lord, to let the light so shine from us that is not a dim light at all, but a light that is bright and, and strong. Not because of us, but because of you. Because of your power, because of your might, because of your strength, and because of your spirit. Lord, we pray that you would use us mightily as we look to the day of Jesus Christ, as we wait for that day for him to return for us. Lord, we want to keep, we just want to serve you. And we want to serve you in the gifts that you have given to us. And if we're not sure of what they are, Lord God, then I just pray that everyone here will seek your face and receive everything that you want to give them as they surrender everything to you. And that is our heart's desire, Lord God. Not that anyone should be ever left behind in the blessings that you want to give to the hearts that truly separate themselves from this world and separate themselves unto you. We thank you and we bless you and we praise you for this. Lord, may your spirit be mighty upon the hearts of those who need you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.